everyone. I hope you enjoyed your lunch. Welcome to those of us, so the, those of you joining us online today. My name is Colleen Kennedy, and I have the great privilege to be the executive director of the Canadian Club Toronto. Lovely to see so many friends here. Thank you. Um, we're so, I hope you enjoyed. Our impressive lineup of club events would not be possible without the support of our sponsors. Um, today's event is generously sponsored by BMO, and we're very appreciative of the support. Thank you, BMO. I'd like to thank our season sponsor, the Canadian Banking Association, and our official airline sponsor, Air Canada, for their ongoing support of our season. We're also proud to uh, partner with Canada's Forest Trust Corporation in a significant environmental initiative, fostering sustainable forestry practices and connecting Canadians more closely with nature. Together, we are not only compensating for today's carbon footprint, but also in nurturing a green legacy for future generations. Thank you, CFT, for planting a forest and preserving it in our honor. Canadian Club Toronto regularly invites young leaders and students to our events. We have a table here today generously sponsored by CAP. Thank you for joining us. We hope for some good questions from you today. Um, if anyone else has questions, we have Q&A cards on the tables. Our staff will pick them up if you have them and get them to uh, Vipple uh, later for the Q&A session. And for those of you online, please hit the submit a question button that's there on your screen and we'll get the questions also uh, incorporated into the conversation. One little sad thing that I hope maybe you guys can help me with, but there's gonna be an emergency alert at 12.55 today. Um, if you turn off your phone, it won't go. Um, but I understand that you might not want to turn off your phone, but don't be startled. But Lisa might appreciate it less loudly to echo. Yes, we perfectly timed for the alert at 12.55. So now I am pleased to invite Bradley Wells, Managing Director and Head of Energy Investment Banking, BMO, to introduce our fabulous speaker. Thank you, Amanda. Energy has been a pillar of the Canadian economy for many years, and access to reliable, affordable, and responsibly produced energy is critical as the world transitions to net zero and manages an increasingly complex and risky geopolitical backdrop. BMO has a long history supporting the energy sector, uh, and we remain committed to doing so today. Oil and natural gas are going to be an important part of the global energy system for many years to come. And Canada is ideally suited to be a leading producer. Realizing on that opportunity is going to require meeting both the energy and economic needs of today and doing what it takes to build a low carbon economy now and into the future. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, CAP, and its member companies are focused on doing just that, which is why we are pleased to be working with them and why I'm honoured to introduce our guest speaker today. Lisa Baton has been the President and Chief Executive Officer of Canada's Upstream Oil and Natural Gas Industry Association since May 2022. As the head of CAP, she is overseeing the strategic realignment of CAP's priorities and advocacy efforts. 
Lisa has a deep executive career. She spent over a decade on the global leadership team at CPP Investments, where she had responsibility for strategy development and program execution across more than 50 countries as managing director and head of global public affairs. She is an expert in geopolitical, political, and regulatory risks. Lisa's also held several other leadership roles, uh, including vice president, practice lead, government relations for a large North American public relations firm where she provided executive legal counsel to highly regulated multinational corporate clients across a range of industries. Lisa also worked for one of Canada's largest industry associations, the Canadian Bankers Association, and has held government leadership roles both at the federal and provincial level in Saskatchewan and Ontario. I have seen firsthand uh, the depth of Lisa's understanding of the oil and gas industry gained not only from her roles as an institutional investor and a policymaker, but her lived experience. She grew up in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, to parents who owned a small oil field trucking, heavy equipment, and earthworks construction company. Following her remarks, uh, Lisa will be joined on stage for a Q&A session uh, by Vipal Manga, uh, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Vipal writes about social issues, uh, economic and financial market trends, and geopolitics for the Canada Bureau. Lisa, the Canadian Club Toronto podium is yours. So good afternoon and thanks to Colleen and the Canadian Club of Toronto as well as Brad from, from BMO for, for hosting this important discussion on Canada's energy future at such a pivotal moment of our country. Um, I uh, thanks to BMO in particular for sponsoring. BMO is CAP's uh, uh, co-partner. We do an annual uh, investor forum uh, here in Toronto. And um, I think somebody said the Canadian Bankers Association was also a sponsor. And I cut my teeth uh, 25 years uh, at the CBA under Ray Proddy. So, um, and I've spent over, over a quarter of a century in almost the entirety of my professional career here in Toronto. And, and it's a city that I love, and it's been really terrific uh, coming back here and, and seeing so many uh, great faces. Isabel Bassett, uh, I used to work for uh, back in the day. I worked for Ernie Eves when he was Minister of Finance and then Premier. So it's just really great to be back here and, and see so many great faces. Um, as Brad mentioned, I did take on the helm of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP as we call ourselves, just over a year and a half ago. And I recall some of you in this very room who said to me, Lisa, are you really sure you want to jump into the oil and gas uh, industry? Do you think that's a smart move? But for sure, I, I took over the helm of Canada's largest oil and gas industry association at a time of great uncertainty, uh, probably the most uncertainty in, in our industry's history, and continuing transition. Russia had just begun its invasion of Ukraine. Putin was holding Europe hostage over energy, triggering an energy supply crisis, and raising energy security concerns amongst the Western alliance. OPEC is, con uh, continuing to uh, supply, is continuing to constrain supply to keep prices high. Industrial nationalism has been a growing feature of the energy transition strategies across the G7, with the USA launching a landmark piece of legislation that had every country around the globe uh, paying attention with the US Inflation Reduction Act. 
And the very real cost of living and affordability crisis impacting citizens required governments globally uh, to course correct their pace of uh, transition uh, policies. And geopolitical volatility generally has been trumping capital market investment considerations around the world. So the challenges were clear, but I also see a number of people in the audience today from Canada's financial and capital markets community, and I really want to give a nod to those organizations that have acknowledged that it is uh, possible to have meaningful net zero 2050 uh, uh, commitments while concurrently acknowledging that global demand for all sources of energy is going to continue for decades to come that have continued to unapologetically support the entire energy uh, spectrum, including uh, traditional energy, that recognize the world-class quality of Canada's energy producers and their technical talent, that enables Canada to produce, produce some of the highest quality hydrocarbons in the world, and that understand the critical role of the Canadian gas, oil and gas sector uh, and what it plays, not only to our nation's economy, but as a critical piece of the net zero challenge and the, uh, captors, the sector's need for capital at scale. I came to this role after spending a third of my career working through three CEOs at one of the largest institutional investors in the world. So I very much hold those views. So despite the skeptics uh, who questioned my move, uh, I actually saw this as a role of a lifetime, an opportunity for me, for sure, uh, but more uh, meaningfully, a chance to help realize what I see as a generational opportunity for Canada. One of Canada's greatest competitive advantages in the global economy is our energy advantage. Canada is blessed with world-class resource, resources. We are the fourth largest producer of oil and the fifth largest natural gas producer in the world. Our oil reserves are larger than that of Russia. But our competitive advantage isn't just about resource wealth. What distinguishes us from some of the larger oil and gas producing nations like Saudi and Russia is that Canada produces our resources with some of the highest human rights and environmental standards in the world. Canada has a unique combination of a commitment to climate change action and capital investment in clean technology innovation. Workers with the talent to produce our resources cost effectively and responsibly. A stable and democratic government. And systems in place to ensure that the financial benefits from resources Canadians own are actually shared across the country for the benefit of Canadians. Realizing our energy advantage has the potential to position Canada as a leader on the global path to net zero, providing secure, responsibly produced oil and natural gas to help lower global emissions, to be a trusted brand on the world stage, acting as a valued ally and source of energy security, and as an economic powerhouse, investing in the technologies of tomorrow and benefiting all Canadians along the path to get there. Yet as we sit here today, it's hard to see how we will realize this opportunity for Canada and for Canadians. Canada continues to face significant challenges. Productivity is falling and inflation persists. Global geopolitics are continuing to change rapidly and with them so are Canada's relationships with longtime allies and trading partners. 
Canada, like other G7 countries, is struggling to find a path to net zero against the realities of a growing global energy demand, global security, and affordability implications for individual citizens. <clears throat> I would argue that the greatest barrier to Canada seizing our energy advantage opportunity is today's uncompetitive and complex regulatory and policy environment. It's in a policy environment that sees Canada languishing in an ever more com uh, competitive global economy. It does not acknowledge the critical importance of the Canadian oil and gas sector to our economy or to our Western allies. <laughs> Dramatically timed for effect. Sound <laughs> it ignores the time value of money and the need for a critical infrastructure permitting process to move with speed and with certainty, particularly in a capital-constrained environment. And it takes a punitive approach to regulation when its biggest competitor next door, the U.S., is using market-based incentives to drive investment and create jobs. The cumulative effect is that Canada is failing to attract the very large-scale capital investment Canada needs in its push towards a lower emission, sustainable, and prosperous economy. I have worked for over a third of my career for one of the top 10 global funds, and I know with certainty that capital is global, it's agile, and it's mobile. It will naturally flow to countries where there are predictable uh, regulatory and policy frameworks. When investors consider where to place their dollars, particularly with large-scale and long-dated projects, and where the outcomes can be binary, they ask how predictable the regulatory and policy frameworks are especially considering the payback periods for these types of assets is very long and the forecasting uh, required is very far into the future. When investors see regulatory uncertainty and risk, that can impede the cost of capital. And eventually, the cost of capital can be prohibitive. And this is an issue for Canada. Yet to be clear, you know, we're not the only country struggling with these issues, but what sets Canada apart in addressing them is our energy advantage. We do have a unique co uh, combination that is not easily replicated, and a combination that, if unleashed, can pull us and our economy through the decades ahead. Namely, our ability to lower global emissions and position as a ca uh, Canada as a leader in climate action, to enhance national security for our allies by supporting their energy security, and while doing so, unleash an economic engine to drive Canadian prosperity. So let me take a minute to talk about each of these three dimensions separately. The first key dimension of Canada's energy advantage is how well positioned Canada's oil and natural gas industry is to address emissions and to position our country as a global, global climate change leader. The global energy transition, or the path to net zero, is a decades-long challenge. We're in the early stages, and the hard realities are, are already revealing themselves. More and more, we're seeing countries recognize that traditional fuels, including oil and natural gas, are critical to addressing their energy security and affordability challenges, and will be needed for decades to come. Global coal use last year reached historically high levels with 195 coal plants under construction and a further 320 planned in the near future. And that growth is unfortunately expected to continue. The problem is emissions do not have boundaries. 
To meet the global climate change challenge, we must find ways to drive down global GHG emissions lower, lower. And this is where Canada can make an outsized contribution to help curb the growth of coal, not just by myopically focusing on our own domestic usage, but by helping larger countries wean off their coal use. Canadian producers are working successfully to drive down emissions. And that's because the Canadian upstream oil and gas producers are, you may be surprised to know this, are the nation's leaders in clean tech investment. Over the past decade, the Canadian upstream oil and gas sector has been able to grow total production from the conventional sector by 21%, while carbon dioxide equivalent emissions went down by 24%. Our natural gas production grew by 35%, while lowering carbon dioxide equivalent emissions by 22%, and methane emissions by 38%. Canada's offshore industry produces the lowest emissions intensive oil in the world. And the largest oil sands companies have joined forces through the Pathways Alliance to deliver a credible plan to get to net zero emissions by 2050 with interim targets along the way. Canadian producers are proving that you can grow production and concurrently uh, lower emissions. It is possible. Let me just take a minute to talk about liquefied natural gas, or LNG. A review by the global consultancy Wood McKenzie found that Canadian LNG exports to Asia could reduce net global emissions by 188 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year. That is the equivalent of removing all of Canada's 41 million cars from the road. The global LNG market is growing. Shell's 2023 LNG outlook is forecasting LNG demand will outpace LNG supply out to 2040. This is because countries around the world are turning to natural gas for both energy security and to transition away from coal to lower their emissions. Germany has rapidly expanded its LNG import capacity, building three LNG import facilities in under than two years. Japan and Singapore have adopted strategic gas storage reserves, and the EU, which declared natural gas as a green fuel late last year, has mandated minimum gas storage levels to protect the bloc from global supply disruptions. Canada's first major LNG export facility, LNG Canada, is set for completion in 2025, and there's three others progressing through approvals and investment decision phases. There are others under consideration. And those projects are critical to putting Canada on the map as an LNG supplier to the world. The LNG opportunity for Canada is here and now. We can build an entirely new export industry for liquefied natural gas and bring all those jobs and billions of dollars of investment to Canada for Canadians while lowering global emissions because it's simply the right thing to do. But there is also an addressable oil and natural gas market for decades to come. Canada's choice is to export our lower emission oil and natural gas and create wealth for this country to further our social and environmental priorities or have another supply do, supplier do it. Full stop. Stop. That's our choice. <clears throat> I'll now turn to the second key dimension of Canada's energy advantage, and that is energy security. And this is one that gets me fired up. Um, rising energy securities, 
concerns in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to a realignment of equally important climate change, energy security, economic, and affordability priorities across the G7. It has been a wake-up call that countries cannot be naive about where our energy comes from. You cannot have national security without energy security. You can't have continental security without energy security. And you, oh, there's Matthias. Hi, Matthias. Uh, and you can't have um, Western alliance security without, without uh, energy security. All, you, all of those require energy security, and that is the uninterrupted availability of energy sources at an affordable price. We cannot underestimate the incredible and enviable advantage that Canada has when it comes to energy security, both in terms of securing it for ourselves and for our national security, but for providing it for others. Canada is one of the few stable democratic nations that has the capacity to produce significantly more oil and natural gas than we can consume. Compare this, for example, to Japan with 72% of their energy coming from imported fossil fuels. Canada's, Canada has a wealth of energy resources that are valued not simply because the world needs uh, oil and natural gas, but because Canada is a secure and trusted trading partner. Today, we are already seizing on that opportunity to some ex uh, effect. <clears throat> Western Alliance countries that produce oil and natural gas include United States, Canada, Norway, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And collectively, they account for 32% of total global production. And in that group, Canada is second only to the United States, contributing 17% of total oil and natural gas production. The supply from stable, democratic, and trusted nations is an important source of energy security at a time when geopolitics, including Russia's war with Ukraine, and now the recent Israel-Hamas conflict and the related Iranian shadow war, are putting greater volumes of oil and natural gas supply at risk. In this context, Canadian oil and natural gas export capacity becomes exceptionally important to ensure global energy security. It's not only an opportunity for Canada, but it is an obligation as a G7 country. Today, virtually all of our oil and natural uh, gas products go to the United States. But we have the opportunity to diversify our markets through the recently completed Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which will supply Canadians' LNG facilities, and the soon-to-be-completed Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which will give our oil exports direct access to tidewater and global markets. Countries such as Japan, Korea, and Malaysia are already invested in our upstream and LNG export industry with the goal of making Canadian gas a key part of their energy mix. Seizing this opportunity has the potential to help Canada claim a powerful voice on the world stage and also to act in lockstep with one of our longest and most valuable trading partners, the United States. Canada's emerging LNG industry paired with the United States' world-leading position uh, in LNG export, which, by the way, should have been ours 10 years ago, uh, means that North America is poised to be the most dominant energy bilateral in the world. We can no longer be naive about where our energy comes from. We simply cannot take it for granted that it will remain available and affordable. And during this period of geopolitical change and volatility, we must position Canada as part of the solution. 
as a trusted ally and a partner to the benefit of our allies to every single Canadian. Finally, the third dimension is realizing our ener energy advantage can help Canada address the economic headwinds we face here at home. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Canadian oil and gas industry is an economic powerhouse for this country and its importance should not be taken for granted. Uh, last week, I'm, uh, we announced some officer changes uh, to the CAPS board and the Globe uh, headline on it was CAP uh, strikes, uh, strives for relevance. Well, <laughs> uh, let me say that the strength of the Canadian dollar is highly correlated to the price of oil, and that impacts each and every, uh, everyone's Canadian, every Canadian's buying power. Canadian oil and gas exports are still a very big component of Canada's balance of trade, uh, making up a fifth of the Canada's total trade value. This year, following several years of, uh, for capital investment in the Canadian oil and gas industry, we are expecting that investment in the upstream production in Canada will hit $40 billion, supporting hundreds of thousands of jobs and providing new spending towards environmental performance and emission-lowering technologies. And as I said before, in fact, oil and gas producers are among the nation's leaders in clean tech investment, providing the backbone uh, for this country's clean tech industry. And let's not forget that the industry is a critical source of federal, provincial, and municipal government revenues. Last year, the oil and natural gas revenues to governments across Canada reached $45 billion, and that amount has increased tenfold since historical lows just three years ago. So you tell me that our, uh, we're struggling for relevance. So those revenues enable governments to operate hospitals, pay our teachers, run critical social programs, and support the arts, in turn, contributing Canadian to the Canadian high quality of living. There is simply nothing else that can replace the national economic benefits that come with, uh, with producing and exporting oil and natural gas in Canada. But what's more important is that realizing that this economic benefit is not mutually exclusive with Canada's and the world's climate change goals. Canada's and uh, the Canadian oil and gas sector is spending an average of $1.4 billion annually into emissions reduction and investing in those technologies that will further lower emissions in the future. And finally, it's all Canadians who stand to benefit. Our supply chain stretches across the country, reaching thousands of businesses located in every province, and we support over 400,000 Canadian jobs. Making up a significant part of that supply chain are hundreds of Indigenous-owned businesses. The industry is the largest employer of Indigenous peoples in this country. And we're also moving to build a deeper level of Indigenous economic participation. Since 2017, almost $4 billion of Indigenous equity positions have been made in oil and gas, and that's in pipelines and LNG facilities and power plants and more. And Trans Mountain will likely add tens of billions more that total. So to keep the trend growing, CAP is supporting organizations like the First Nations Major Projects Coalitions and others in calling for a national Indigenous loan guarantee program to be included in the Canadian government's upcoming national benefits sharing framework. And importantly, that program must not exclude natural uh, oil and natural gas projects. Yes. <laughs> 
Doing so would exclude a significant portion of the project opportunities available to Indigenous investment, and further, it would impede uh, the uh, Indigenous peoples the right to define their own pathway forward. So if we, one, meaningfully start to decrease global emissions by exporting more of our lower emission oil and natural gas, and two, grow our role and influence on the global stage by being a trusted source of energy, then three, we can uh, strengthen Canada's economy and bring all of those benefits of a thriving oil and gas industry to Canadians. So I started my remarks talking about my time in Toronto and the financial industry. So just permit me a moment to talk about my new province of Alberta and the city of Calgary. At a time of increasing polarized debates and more divisive rhetoric, I can say definitively that the people I've met and worked with over the last year and a half are intensely proud Canadians. They're hardworking, they're entrepreneurial, and they're committed to doing better all the time. And they will be, and they will continue to be a critical key pillar of national prosperity and future success, not as a sunset economy to be transitioned away from. Our greatest success as a, as a, a nation will be unlocked when we have pan-Canadian strategies rather than regional factionalism. So to conclude, there's a lot of questions asked about Canada's future. But the question we should be asking is, why aren't we seizing one of Canada's strongest competitive advantages to be a leader in the global economy today? One of our greatest attributes as Canadians is our humility. We say, I'm sorry, a lot. Much has changed in the world and so, much our, uh, so must our course. And we do not need to apologize for our energy advantage. We should be extremely proud of it and what it can do for Canada and for the world. Canada does need future drivers of prosperity, one that can pragmatically propel us through the energy transition and set Canada up for future economic success. The world needs oil and natural gas. The world also needs to decarbonize. Canada can be a leader on both. There is a vision within our reach in which after 2050, Canada has the lowest emitting oil and natural gas products for as long as there is demand, a world where Canada is positioned competitively as the most favored producing nation, as a nation with a credible track record of building not just one or two projects, but multiple nation building projects that will ensure Canadians receive full value for our valuable natural resources, and continue to grow and export our supply of responsibly produced oil and natural gas, and in doing this, attracting the global capital investment into emissions reducing major projects that will allow Canadians to prosper in a lower carbon world. But to achieve this vision, we have to get the policy environment right. It needs to be clear, it needs to be pragmatic, and it needs to be competitive with other nations. It also needs to align across the provinces and federally, which means we need to collaborate across political lines and across industries. And if we get that right, we can ensure that billions of dollars of investment come here to Canada, creating jobs and opportunities and prosperities for all Canadians for decades to come. Thanks for listening to me. Sorry. People who know me know I'm loud. 
Well, thanks, everyone. I'd like to thank the Canadian Club for the invite. Uh, what a fascinating time to be talking to you about this. Uh, and I'd like to start our conversation by addressing the biggest issue facing the oil and gas industry, arguably the world, which is climate change. Yep. Um, issue was front and center all summer. We had uh, one of the worst wildfire seasons on record. Uh, 2023 looks to be the hottest year in uh, recorded history, according to scientists. And the UN recently said that the world's biggest oil producing countries, including Canada, will miss their emissions tar reduction targets because oil and gas production is increasing in those countries. Can oil and gas producers reduce emissions without cutting production? Yes. I think, uh, as I outlined in my speech, that uh, uh, as I indicated, our sector is the largest spender on clean tech in the country. Um, they're proactively investing in GHG emissions reduction technologies. There's a full suite of tools in the toolbox. There's CCUS, there's electrification, there's uh, methane abatement. And um, we have proven over the last decade that we can meaningfully reduce GHG emissions while uh, increasing uh, production at the same time. In respect to uh, meeting targets, I think I think there's uh, been a greater awakening across um, the Western Alliance that there needs to be uh, a better realignment across equally important climate change, uh, energy security or national security, uh, economic and affordability considerations. So if our goal is net zero by 2050, that should be our goal and we shouldn't get twisted in a pretzel if we're if we're not making um, interim targets. There are very real consequences that need to be considered, and um, particularly in a very volatile geopolitical global construct, and these things need to be thought about pragmatically. So, I, I, you know, I can tell you definitively, uh, my members are absolutely committed um, to driving GHG emissions uh, down, um, but there's there's other pieces of the puzzle that have to come um, together for for even more to be done, and that is a uh, is policy certainty, it's uh, investor certainty, it's a um, uh, those combined need to be uh, competitive. You know, our largest um, neighbor next door, the USA launched a half a trillion dollar all-you-can-eat buffet of incentive carrots, um, market incentives. They're not picking winners and losers. And so it's, it's very frustrating to be in Canada where we, you know, we, do, we, do, we don't operate um, in recognition of the time value of money. And, you know, we've been talking about incentives now for CCOS for two years, and we're we're still talking about it, and that's to say we you know we can't compete dollar for dollar with the U.S. Um, and a half a trillion dollar uh, buffet of carrots, but we can compete with right-sized investments for our country, where we we have a chance of of um, having major projects, CCOS and other uh, LNG projects come to fruition. And we can also change our permitting process that, um, that moves with speed and with certainty um, and, and prove that, uh, that we can get projects built. I was chatting with uh, Brad from BMO over lunch and, and uh, you know, we're just talking about the fact that, you know, 
again, having spent a third of my career at CPP Investments, you know, the, the goal was to um, have a race to have all cap a global capital uh, try to beat down your door and, and place investments. And, and um, the reality is global capital is not right now putting a bet on, on, on Canada. Hmm. You mentioned carbon capture, and there's been a lot of focus on carbon capture as a way of reducing emissions. <laughs> Does it work, at least at the scale necessary, uh, to make a dent in emissions? There's an environmental think tank in September said carbon capture is too expensive and difficult to employ. And then the International Energy Agency said recently that carbon capture and storage will remove 0.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide globally by 2050, which is roughly equivalent to only 2% of total emissions from combustion activities. Doesn't sound like a lot. Uh, do you think this technology can be brought to scale at a cost that makes sense? I think so, but we have to get in the game. Um, you know, it's it's taken billions of dollars and hundreds of projects to to achieve results, and there's much more that we can do. The next phase, for sure, is going to be more difficult to achieve for a lot of the reasons I've already articulated. But Canada is a leader in carbon um, capture. We have the 30 commercial scale CCUS projects on the globe fiber in Canada, and that's a big deal, and that's something we should be really working hard to leverage and build out and um, have Canada be the global thought leader on CCUS and, uh, and export our thought leadership um, and uh, to the world and, and have that alpha come back to, to Canada for the benefit of Canadians like um, the U.S. is doing. Um, I would say, of, to say, is it having any effect of those five Canadian ones? Um, they have stored the equivalent of 9.4 uh, million cars or 44 million tons of CO2. So yes, it's having an effect. And um, we have 24 carbon projects uh, in the queue in Canada, just waiting waiting for the right things to get, get things started. You mentioned subsidies and what the US is doing in terms of the IRA. In Canada, the, the Canadian government says it won't increase tax credits. Uh, they, they already say that their carbon uh, capture credits are robust enough as they say. And the Pathways Alliance has argued that it'll miss deadlines for slashing emissions without more government support. What's your reaction to critics who say the industry is profitable enough to develop this technology without taxpayer subsidies? I would say that when it comes to uh, projects of national interest, it is not, um, it is appropriate to ask for governments and industry uh, to, the, to come to the table to ensure that they actually get built and uh, so that everybody has skin in the game and so that those projects can uh, get, get built with, with the time value of money uh, in consideration and, uh, and to get them up and running and uh, for the benefit of uh, Canadians. Now, the, this current Trudeau administration has... Uh, is expected to release an emissions cap legislation mm -hmm. uh, by the end of the year, I guess in time for the uh, COP28. Uh, what do you expect to see out of this legislation? Um, if, if you want the honest truth, um, I hope it doesn't come forward. It's unnecessary. Uh, we already have a very complex, competitive, uh, and cumbersome uh, regulatory environment that is um, impacting capital flows to Canada and to our industry and to the next phase of our industry uh, and GHG emissions technologies and adding yet another pancake on top of a, a stack of pancakes uh, really won't help things. It'll just make us more competitive, 
I could argue that one might, uh, one might make the case that all of these pancakes are actually meant not to assist, but are meant to uh, fast track the uh, obliteration of our industry. Um, but I would also say it's not unnecessary. I just outlined some of the stats over the last 10 years on what the industry is already doing. They're committed to doing it. It's a competitive differentiator to do it. And they're doing it without, um, without, without a, a cap. So I don't, think, I don't think we need another stack uh, pancake on the stack. Um, the government's flagging, I think, a 40% reduction from 2005 levels. That's the number I've seen floated around. Do you think that's achievable? I, th I think we're working with, um, we're trying to come to the table with federal and provincial governments in a very collaborative way going, you know, if the end goal is 2050, what actually needs to happen to get there? And one of the conversations we've been having is it's, it's really easy to come up with random dates and random targets and put them on one high emitting industry hours and not talk about any of the other high emitting industries at all and say you must achieve this by such date. But you know there has to be a recognition that um, you know one uh, we have a re very regionally diverse country and and the Canadian oil and gas industry is also uh, equally very diverse. We, we, it, it is from coast to coast. It's offshore. It's onshore, um, and it also requires you know we've I've talked about the tools toolkit. Uh, uh, the producers have already electrified a lot of their production. Um, there's CCUS, there's methane, there's more we can do. But in, in the case of electrification, you know, we can't do that alone. Um, we've gone to governments and we've showed them the grid coast to coast, where, where the grid exists, what the capacity of the grid is, what's already been electrified, um, how much more the grid can take. And oh, by the way, here's the production up here and there isn't a transmission line with any, within 500 kilometers of, of the production. So that's not a conversation if you want us to electrify, great. You know, we're, we're already doing it where there's where there's a grid and where there's capacity. But then that's a conversation for utilities to uh, green their grids and and or to build um, more capacity and, and more transmission lines. Now, one of the arguments I've heard out of Ottawa um, is that the industry has said for a long time it can boost productivity and cut emissions. Uh, and the cap is simply a way of just holding the industry's feet to the fire basically uh, forcing it to meet that goal. How do you respond to that kind of tactic out of Ottawa? Well, I, again, I'll just say we have proven we can increase production and take the carbon out. Um, and we've done that in the absence of having our feet held to our fire, uh, to the fire. And uh, again, um, we in Canada, we can really get caught up into the weeds and we just need to look uh, above the parapet and see what other countries are doing, particularly the ones right next door to us, and um, and be competitive, um, and even look at some of the lessons over the you know over the last year post Russia Ukraine, uh, and what the EU is doing. You know, last fall a year ago, you know, we were told by our publicly was told there is no case for LNG in Canada. Germany, I'm sitting with uh, an official from Germany here today, in the last two years, in two years, they have built three LNG uh, import facilities because they are worried about their energy security and their national security and they need to transition off um, Russian supply and um, 
So we need to have a, we just need to pull up and we have to look at the competitive landscape. We have to really be honest about how global capital works. And we also have to look at the geopolitical um, uh, elements that are at play that are very real and um, they all have to be considered in equal consideration. And that might mean an interim target isn't appropriate anymore, even if we are all working collectively towards 2050. Danielle Smith called the emissions cap overreach. She uh, compared it to Bill C-69, which the Supreme Court just struck down parts of. What's your reaction to that comment, and, and how does the repeal of parts of the C-69 affect the oil and gas industry? Well, in terms of the Supreme Court of Canada's decision on the Impact of Assessment Act, or Bill C-69, a CAP was a formal intervener in that process, and we were not only pleased with the outcome, we were pleased that um, the Supreme Court, in their reference decision, uh, referenced arguments from our intervention. So um, I do think it is a, a, an opportunity to reset policy in, in the country. Um, but I would say we really need to remain vigilant. And, and uh, in, in terms of that reset, we, again, we need to be looking above the parapet. We have to look at other countries. What are they doing? And, you know, again, the LNG uh, import facility example in Germany. Um, eight, in, when I was at CP Inve uh, Investments, I started in 2010. We were so excited that Canada was going to own the LNG opportunity. And we saw that investment capital seep to other parts of the globe. Uh, seven years ago, the U.S. was nowhere, nowhere on LNG exports. Now they're the largest LNG exporter in the world, and all of Canada's LNG has to go through the U.S., and we, lose, we sell it at a discount to get it to, to markets globally. That should have been Canada. And we're at that moment in time now where we have that opportunity with CCUS and, and to uh, at least try to get a, a, a fair share of the LNG opportunity for ourselves. And yet, you know, we just can't seem to get out of our own way here as Canadians. I, I, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Um, do we have time for questions? We have qu some questions from here. Yeah, I'll do one. Um, so, question from the audience. Oil and gas industries get a negative reputation amongst a broader population. Where do you think the industry has gone wrong in marketing or publicizing itself? Hmm. Um, I think, well, I can speak on behalf of the Industry Association. I think we lost a decade in telling the good news story about, um, so, you know, things started coming at, at the industry in particular starting about a, a decade ago. And, um, you know, we should have been out there going, hey guys, like everything I just said in my speech, like you can't be naive about where your energy comes from. It's tied to your national security. You can't be naive about um, the importance of, of oil and gas to the Canadian economy, the, the strength of the dollar, the balance of trade, uh, federal, provincial, municipal government revenues. There's nothing that will replace that. And I think we could have done a better job earlier on um, and talking about how forward um, thinking we've been in terms of uh, clean tech investment and proactively tackling the GHG challenge and the fact that, you know, uh, my member companies are, are very committed uh, to sustainability goals. So I, I think uh, we lost 
a decade and in terms of uh, getting out there and telling the story uh, outside of uh, the producing provinces um, and to other parts of Canada and uh, being at the table and having a dialogue. But I'm running to catch up. It'll be an interesting next decade for sure. Yeah. I think we're out of time, but thank you very much. On behalf of the Canadian Club Toronto, I want to sincerely thank you for such a passionate and enlightening speech. Canada's oil and gas industry is regularly in the news, but many of us are unaware of the profound impact that CAP's member companies make to our country. We appreciate the clear and compassionate way you position oil and natural gas sector as vital to growth and prosperity nationally and globally. We admire the way you use your lived experience to tell a compelling story. We wish you continued success in your leadership role, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. Vipal, thank you for joining us as well, for your expert and uh, moderation and keen questions. I know it wasn't easy. Members and guests, before we conclude, I want to invite you to our one of our next events. On Monday, December 4th, we host Mr. Guy Cormier, the President and CEO of Desjardins. And on December 15th, we will welcome the Governor of the Bank of Canada, Mr. Tiff Macklem, to our podium. So we hope to see you there. Let me conclude by thanking our AV supplier, VPC Live, and for its excellent support of our events. And of course, once again, thank you to Vimo for your sponsorship support. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lisa and Cap. It was a wonderful day, and we hope you have a great one the rest of the day. <laughs> Thanks.